Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrismovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, continuing my feud with Sparknotes over their <laughs> interpretations of Anna Karenina. <laughs> but you'll never stop reading it. No, no. Well, yeah, who would you feed with then? It's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana. And this week, I'm I'm the Ren Fair boy. I'm I'm so excited to go going to Ren Fair next week. Uh, also, it's expensive to go to Ren Fair, as I've discovered. And I'm going as a monk. I've got a very heavy. I think it's like a suede monk costume, and I'm going to be attaching a mask to the inside of like a big beard. So this will be my last podcast because I will probably be dying of heat stroke next weekend. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> or join the Ren Fair professionally with that <laughs> slick costume. <laughs> I'll just be taken in by the Ren Fair carnies. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good Ren Fair pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, as you're probably aware by now, uh, we're going to be finishing our Summer of Anna Karenina series with part eight. So thank you to everyone who has come along on this journey with us all the way to the end. And big thanks to Cameron for spending two months with me down the rabbit hole <laughs> of 19th century literature. <laughs> This series was only made possible by the support of all of our patrons. So thank you to everyone who has subscribed over at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. If you would like the biggest uh, Russian lit podcast to keep pushing out top tier content, uh, head on over to our Patreon. If you don't, we'll still be putting out content, but it's going to be bottom tier and you're going to wish you that you had. Uh, for, as <laughs> for as little as $3 a month, you can have access to notes from every episode, exclusive bonus episodes, and polls to help us choose what we're reading next. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Thanks, Cameron. That was beautiful. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Uh, Matt, before we get into the reading today, uh, what, and I'm very excited to ask this question this week, as I am every week, but especially excited to ask it now, what are you drinking? This week, I have been waiting to crack this bad boy out for quite some time it is an exclusive brew only given to some of the most exclusive russian lit boys on the <laughs> planet uh big thank you to our patron darren who brews his own beer and he brewed this really cool ipa called forgetting kitty uh much like kitty from anna karenina uh so this is a mcveigh brewing exclusive that we're going to be drinking tonight it looks super cool i'm really excited what are you drinking i am also drinking this mcveigh brewing exclusive uh, I love the label on here. It's got a bunch of uh, peasants working, like cutting wheat in a field, and it just it looks so good. This is so aesthetic. I love it so much. Yeah, when he first told me that that's what the name of the beer he was brewing was, I did not put it together. I was like, oh, that's a weird name for a beer. And then I got it, and I was like, oh, that's right, because I run a Russian literature podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, Matt sent that that to me. He was like, hey, you should take a look at this. This is really cool. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. It's um, uh. Well, it's just amazing in general, but also it's it's Tolstoy themed. And then like a couple, uh, like a week or two later, you were like, oh, my God, it's a it's an anacrinina themed beer. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you've been sitting on this this whole time. I'm not the smartest tool in the peasant shed. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> be that as it may, uh, hopefully by the end of this podcast, we'll also be forgetting Katie when we drink this. I also uh, he, he sent us a second beer uh, called and I'm probably going to horribly mispronounce this La Chayette which is a dark side song. I'll probably be breaking that out at some point in this episode because I'm super excited too. There's an owl on the label and I love it. Yeah, that one's up next. Yeah, Le Chayette is also going to help me forget Kitty in this episode. So thank you to all our patrons, but also really thank you to Darren for giving us free beer. Yeah, that was super cool. We've come full circle to what we've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, <clears throat> speaking of forgetting Kitty, let's talk about forgetting Anna as in going back to oh. what we're all here at Anna Karenina for just farming content. I, I think part seven had to be the Kareninning because part eight is very little Kareninning to be had. Part eight is what, maybe one mention of Karenin, maybe. Well, definitely one, but I don't know if there are any more besides that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty sparse. Yeah, yeah, it's very low on Karenin content, but very high on farming content, which is again what we're all here for. Yeah, I mean it's fine. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Let's talk about what happens here. This is a much shorter part than the other ones, so we won't be spending as much time here. I say before I accidentally spend 30 minutes summarizing this. 
so <laughs> we opened <laughs> we opened part eight with the most important character after Anna's suicide, Sergey, <laughs> Levin's brother, who we were all <laughs> after after his failed romance with uh, Varenka. We were all you know really waiting to figure out what would happen to Sergey. So Sergey releases the book that he's been working on throughout this entire novel. It has taken him six years to put this out, and he's so excited for his. <laughs> over half a decade of labor to finally make waves in the Russian intellectual circle. And then it doesn't. And I, I know what it's like to have my, my projects flop, but I don't know what it's like to have six years of a project flop. So that's rough. You know who does know? Tolstoy. <laughs> Tolstoy knows. I, I, I really should have double checked the dates on this, but I know Tolstoy worked for a really long time on like a children's education book for which he taught himself like, hundreds of different subjects uh, to write these books yeah and it it went really really poorly the first time it ended up being okay i think on his his second edition they became more widespread but for a while right. it was <laughs> so i don't really know if that's uh supposed to be a biographical detail or not but could have been interesting yeah uh well what definitely wasn't a biographical detail is after this fails at this time uh the, the serbian war is breaking out and so the the Serbians are are now fighting against the Turks, and this has become a uh, you know cause celebre in Russia. And Sergey sublimates his existential angst over <laughs> releasing a book that no one liked into getting really into the Serbian war. That's that's taking up all of his time now, and he decides after a while that he he should probably take a break between you know that huge book and also now you know becoming a kind of a cheerleader for for this war. Uh, and getting Russian citizens involved in kind of this pan-Slavic effort. And he decides to go visit his brother, uh, along with Katasov, the sociologist we met earlier. Yeah, you know, just some of the real main important characters this whole time. And you've been like, how are they going to end up? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and so they decide they decide to go visit Levin out in the countryside. And so they, they head out to the train station. Well, the train station, because of course, anytime any character goes anywhere, everyone else is always there. Uh, so they... <laughs> They go and they see Steva hanging out, and Steva is not in a good way. He goes out and pats them on the back, on the back and um, chats with them and says, Hey, I wrote a letter to my wife. If you're going out to see, you know, my, my brother-in-law, just, you know, let her know everything's okay. And they're like, okay, sure. Interesting, yeah. And then they see Vronsky, and Steva leaves them, and he goes over to see Vronsky. And um, I'm just going to read this line, because it's rough. He went into the hall where Vronsky was, and he had completely forgotten his own despondency, his own despairing sobs over his sister's corpse, and he saw in Vronsky only a hero and old friend. Steva's eyes fucking cold, dude. <laughs> yeah. They're at the station, they see everyone, they, they get on the train, they take off. Uh, this is an interesting section where Katasov chats with some of the volunteers going to fight in the Serbian war, and he decides that he doesn't really like any of them. The only one he likes is an older Russian soldier who thinks all the other recruits are not very good either, and but neither of them are willing to tell it, which is kind of an interesting scene, but over, not really that important in the grand scheme of things. No. Um, well, yeah, while that's going on, the train comes to a stop, and Sergei goes out and he sees uh, Vronsky's mother, the Countess, and they chat, and uh, the Countess recounts how much she hates Anna. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about people who are ice cold? This lady. <laughs> yeah. She just, it just keeps coming back to Vronsky and what he's doing now and going, now he's leading a regiment into the Serbian war, uh, raised on his own funds. But of course, that's all secondary to the fact that she just hates Anna. <laughs> uh, uh, so after a while, Sergei, even, even Sergei's a little bit uncomfortable with that and he doesn't really care. And so he he just kind of leaves, and he goes, and he finds Vronsky to chat with him. And Vronsky and him kind of see eye to eye. Um, Vronsky has now found new purpose in fighting in the Serbian war, and in the way he speaks, he, he very heavily implies that he probably intends to die in this war, which Sergei uh, very awkwardly kind of claps him on the back and is like, yeah, that's that's heroic, bud. You should... That's good. That, that's good. That's a good thing you're doing. That's great you're leaving the house, pal. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that uh, they... His mother describes, uh, or Vronsky's mother describes that they have to make sure, they had to watch him for weeks to make sure he didn't kill himself after, you know, the last time Anna almost died and he shot himself. But then they're all super glad for him to go to war where he's very obviously intending to just die in battle. But when 
Sergei kind of claps him on the back and tells him he's doing the right thing. And Vronsky says, uh, yes, as a weapon, I may be of some use. But as a man, I'm a wreck. Um, just <laughs> no one in the 19th century knew how to read a warning sign, apparently. No. 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 Um, so after that, Sergei and Katasov get back on the train. And they head all the way back to the, the country estate. And when we when we when they arrive, we find out that they... Obviously, we didn't tell Levin they were going to come stay at his house for weeks. And so they arrive and meet Giddy. Uh, Levin's currently out and in, in, uh, he's out with his bees at the moment. Levin's gotten really into beekeeping now because, of course, he has. Oh, we've all been there. <laughs> who, who hasn't just kind of just started dabbling in beekeeping every once just in a while? Just a little bit. I mean, I like the suits. That's true. That's fair. Sue me. They are pretty good suits. Uh, yeah, so Katie greets them and then goes to see her father and Dolly and has Dolly entertain the two while she goes to go nurse her son. Um, she hangs out in the next chapter with her son and she's reflecting on Levin and Levin has not been having a good time recently, but even though he's always despairing and a non-believer, which she is not super down with, she admires Levin. and She's really come around to seeing him for a very reliable husband and just a good man and she tells her son as she nurses him that you know be only like your father if nothing else essentially of course while she's inducing uh dimitri her son and and levin's son to be more like levin we we rejoin levin and find out that he's just having a terrible time because he's thinking too much as per usual we we spend the next couple of chapters just following levin's spiritual crisis that entire that has been happening for this entire spring he has been going back and forth. He's been reading Western philosophers. He's been reading Orthodox philosophers. And he keeps getting convinced by people and then realizing they're wrong or it's not complete. And it's so bad that he is very, very scared that he's going to kill himself because the emotional and intellectual strain is so great from him not being able to figure out how to live his life. And in, in the middle of this, we rejoin his present, which is slightly better because he's now kind of walked away from trying to engage intellectually with what he should be doing and is just throwing himself into just the running of his estate uh his, his brother sergey and his sister's estates as well as he's overseeing it helping out dolly as steva has <laughs> asked her to sell her estate because he's in such financial strain but dolly at this point hard to believe hard to believe really yeah, hard but, to believe <laughs> yeah i know right um dolly at this point is resolved to leave steva and so levin's trying to help her out without hurting her pride and, and we rejoin him farming going around telling the peasants what to do what the most efficient way to do things is and this all kind of comes to a grinding halt when he's talking to a peasant about some of the other people this peasants worked for and the peasant makes a comment about one of his former employers being someone who was a good man because he basically he followed god he had he just he had a spirit in the right place this leads into another crisis for Levin because everything leads to a crisis for Levin. And he suddenly realizes, up to this point, he's always struggled. He's wanted to have faith, but he just doesn't. He's, he's too convinced by, by his materialist philosophers uh, to really have faith. But at the same time, he recognizes that this material philosophy in, in which he believes also is kind of hollow. And it, it leaves him with a kind of a what next sort of approach to life. What, like, what's the point if this is all true? And he, and he suddenly re realizes the paucity of, of reason and intellect, and he realizes that he had been, quote, living rightly and, and thinking wrongly. And actually, there's a sort of divinity which exists outside reason from which we can ascertain certain truths, such as uh, that we should love our neighbors, or we should not murder, or we should be moral, are all things that come from a greater divine truth than reason can, can come up with. Of course, you can reason out why you might not want to hurt your neighbor, but the basic idea of, of loving your neighbor is something that has to come from a greater power than reason alone. And he decides that he is a changed man now. Everything's going to be different. He loves everything again. And that lasts about as long until he meets someone. <laughs> and he's instantly annoyed at how they do things. Yep. And then he kind of walks that back a little bit. Um, and when he gets, he, his coachman takes him back to his guests. He's annoyed at his co coachman. And then Levin, Dolly, the prince, Sergei, and, and Katasov sit down to lunch. And they have a long debate over the, the Serbian war, over what's going on there with uh, Sergei and Katasov taking the perspective that the Pan-Slavism, which has emerged from this, is, is a good thing, and this is a good war, whereas Levin and the prince kind of oppose them. Levin more so because he does not 
understand the sense of pan-Slavism. He doesn't understand why you would care about issues outside of Russia itself. He does not feel any kinship with non-Russians. And the prince is just kind of anti-war in general and is telling the other two that if they're so uh, inclined to fight, they should be fighting themselves instead of just arguing for the existence of war, which is annoying to Levin because he feels like there's so many counterpoints to the things that they're saying that he should be bringing up. But he, he, even though he's annoyed, decides, I need to kind of stick to my newfound belief in the divinity of, of you know, my beliefs. And he decides that instead of continuing to argue, he's just going to try to detour them. And he points out that it's about to rain and they should all head inside. On the way in, he realizes that as the rain picks up, Kitty uh, and Dimitri are out. They're out for a walk and he runs after them and lightning hits a tree and it falls in the spot that they usually stand. And he freaks out thinking that his his wife and son might be dead. And as he runs towards it, he actually ends up seeing them in the distance and is just overwhelmed with with joy that they are well will haven't been crushed by a tree. Pixels away. <laughs> yeah. Pixels. Mere pixels from having a very <laughs> different ending to this story. We could have had a whole new spiritual crisis after the death of 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 Kitty and Dimitri. After the triple tree homicide. <laughs> oh yeah, and the nurse mate is there too. She's also important for Dimitri. After that, they'll go inside and they start to have dinner. Levin leaves the others behind because Kitty has is hanging out with Dimitri and Levin decides to go, he wants to go hang out with them, or rather he's summoned to go be with them. And on the way up, he, he continues to interrogate his idea about uh, this sense of divinity and what does it mean to him. And, you know, of course, because it's Levin, even this suddenly divine revelation, he begins to question, such as this is for him a very Christian, you know, it, it's a very Christian revelation but then he thinks well what about what about the non-christians what about the catholics what about the greek orthodox what about the protestants what about the buddhists what about the Mohammedans or, or uh, muslims as we would say now uh, you know how, how can i say that they are wrong when they also preach divinity and they also do good deeds um how can i do that and then he goes and hangs out with his son and wife and you know finds some pride in dimitri and kitty's glad that he's no longer disgusted by his son <laughs> 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 he doesn't um, visibly grimace every time he sees this child yeah and then he tells her that when they almost died he suddenly felt pride and like no, suddenly i realized what it's like to love my son now that he almost died by being crushed by a tree <laughs> um, and then he leaves to go outside and he stares out up at the sky and realizes that this divine truth for him in relation to the question of other religions, that's not a conflicting thing because he has his divine truth and those other religions have their divine truths and it's not his place to to say the rightness or wrongness or, or try to think through their beliefs. So this the newfound sense of kind of religiosity, but a religiosity that exists outside the Orthodox Church and religiosity that doesn't necessarily exist within, well, it exists within Christian strictures without being i don't know totalizing and and the term that you like to use in 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 relation to tolstoy's philosophies on life you know it baby <laughs> and looking out at that and realizing that this divinity and uh even though as much as he's wanted to do good for everyone what's kind of important for him is the inner peace and do good do right to the people immediately around him and the rest will follow brings him finally a sense of inner peace Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, for the moment. Woo! At least when it ends, it brings him a sense of inner peace. Well, let me go. Let me read the last couple of lines. The, bo the book ends on, on him understanding that this, does, this means he's not really a changed person. This new feeling has not changed me, has not made me happy and enlightened all of a sudden, as I had dreamed, just like the feeling for my child. There was no surprise in this either. Faith, or not faith, I don't know what it is, but this feeling has come just as imperceptibly through suffering and has taken firm root in my soul. I shall go on the same way, losing my temper with Ivan, the coachman, falling into angry discussions, expressing my opinions tactlessly. There will still be the same wall between the holy of holies of my soul and other people, even my wife. I shall still go on blaming her for my own terror and being sorry for it. I shall still be as unable to understand with my reason why I pray and I shall still go on praying. But my life now, my whole life, apart from anything that can happen to me, every minute of it is now no longer meaningless, as it was before, but has an unquestionable meaning of the goodness which I have the power to put into it. And those are the lines on which we leave the main, char main character of Anna Karenina, Konstantin Levin. 
Ooh. Nice. Yeah. Kind of an unsatisfying ending. <laughs> you know? Like <laughs> man. man goes on a nine hundred page spiritual journey. He's like, you know what? I had the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it's just it was just a vague feeling in the divinity of things that doesn't change the way I act, but just means I've got meaning. Like I uh, I guess it's profound in its own way. I think I think it is actually I think it it is interesting. It is. I just think it's I, on the service level, it's kind of like, oh my god, why did I read this? <laughs> um, yeah, so after after Anna's passing, we spend another 70 pages with Levin's thoughts. And then this is what we come to in the very end of Anna Karenina, which is probably, if you were not experienced with Anna Karenina before you, you were coming into this podcast, not what you were expecting. No. Matt, how do you, how do you walk away from this ending? You know... I gotta make another pitch for the labyrinth of plots. Okay, go for it. We can't stop. <laughs> I know that everyone's sick of it, but if you're not convinced <laughs> by it at this point, there could be perhaps no stronger evidence in the book that they're important other than the fact that Tolstoy totally could have ended this book after seven parts. One, seven's a better number than eight. <laughs> Two, uh, you wouldn't have to spend 70 pages with this guy farming. Uh, I mean, that's... You know, it would have been... Probably, I don't want to say a satisfying ending, but it would have been a more conclusive ending uh, had he ended it after the last part. Yeah. Um, but then, you you know, you wouldn't get the conclusion to Levin's spiritual journey. But I think most people, you know, as you're kind of reading this, maybe your first time, or if you're not really familiar with Tolstoy, you're kind of like already pu pushing that to the back of your mind. But no, Tolstoy does not let you have that. He says, you are going to read 70 more pages of this until you understand why it's important. <laughs> and people still don't. But not the viewers, not the listeners of this podcast. They will understand. They will understand the labyrinth is the last thing I do. <laughs> so anyways, it's bringing your attention back to it. So it's probably pretty important. Yeah. I mean, again, drawing back to the, the comparison, like the kind of somewhat vulgar plot comparisons between Levin and Nana. Again, you can point back to spiritual crisis um, drives them both to the brink of suicide. Anna does follow through with that uh but levin finds god instead again points in their lives which are essentially the same led to very different endings by the particulars of their circumstance can i do my feud with spark notes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. please go on with your feud about spark notes okay well i'll summarize a little bit on the last i just like to see what their analysis says so that i can have someone to mentally spar with <laughs> uh when i Sometimes when I prep, it, it, it jogs my memory and gives yeah. me good thoughts sometimes. Um, and they're talking about how, how well, there should be air quotes. Feminist critics feel that Anna Karenina uh, kind of the eighth part leaves a, a strange impression on them. I, I don't know what feminist critics they're referring to here. I, I wouldn't do that. Uh, not going to get into it. Wouldn't do it, though. Uh, <laughs> but there is this part where it's kind of an example of that. Sparknotes says, and I quote, all the compassion with which Tolstoy has represented the complexity of Anna's situation goes up in smoke when Countess Fransky is given the last word, calling Anna lowly and mean, unquote. And yes, I will, I will read the line from, from the Countess when she says, yes, hers, Anna's death uh, was fitting, was the fitting end for such a woman. Even the death she chose was coarse and vulgar. And now... I would say that that's not actually the last word, because if you have even two brain cells left when you're reading this, uh, you would think, wow, that's pretty that's pretty harsh for uh, what actually just happened to the seven parts that I read. And I think that's the impression that you're supposed to be left on. I don't think she has the last word. I think you as the reader have the last word when you conclude, <laughs> as Sparknotes kind of almost does, but not quite but that I will conclude uh, is that you actually had the last word when you have, uh, you know, you've kind of compared what she says to how you feel. And I, I don't think all the, the sympathy that Tolstoy drums up for Anna and whatnot, I don't think it goes away because of that. If anything, it evokes more sympathy. Uh, if anything, it it refutes the simple explanation that this is just a story about someone who's done something wrong and is punished because of that. Based on the reaction that I had, and that I'm assuming other people have to hearing that line that you cannot claim that that's what Anna Karenina is about as a result of that. 
well, even the character listening to her kind of has not exactly a negative reaction, but Sergei's response to her saying that is, it's not for us to judge, Countess, but I can understand that it has been very hard for you. That's a man who's trying to get out of a situation without committing to any one <laughs> stance on this. Oh, yeah, that's like that's like family dinner table at a holiday kind of evasion <laughs> right there. Yeah. It's skillful. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, to your point that it's weird to take that away as the final word when we as reader, as the reader, have a final word on that. We can judge characters independent of what order they appear for rightness. And secondarily, right, right, right. even the characters within don't have positive reactions to her statement. At the best, it's neutral. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch the feminist criticism now because that's like too much. Well, Sparknotes kind of says that you know the female storyline vanishes, and it's hardly mentioned. That's I, I, no one's arguing that that makes it not a you know. Anyways. Uh, and that like Levin's conclusion is arguably sexist. Um, I don't think Spark knows is saying that. I think they're summarizing points of views, but you know, you, you, you could make this argument, but it's too much. To, Tolstoy's position on women is too much to discuss in one episode. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if we're right. It's I don't lot. know if we right now, I don't know if we are in a position to discuss Tolstoy and women, um, a in this episode and B. I would need to prep a lot for yeah, that episode. That's that's um, I, I need to go read the Kreutzer Sonata first, and then I need to go pray away the Kreutzer yeah. Sonata. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's that's an entirely different can of worms. Big time. Yeah, but uh, I, okay, I want to go back to the kind of religiosity that Levin takes on because I think that's really, and I'm going to go very outside of the realm of of literature critic here <laughs> for a second. Do it. You're gonna you're gonna cosplay as a monk at the Ren Fair. You deserve to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of um, religiosity, have you ever read Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson? Oh boy, have I? Yeah, <laughs> we all have. We we were IR majors. Well, actually, they don't need that make that many of us read it anymore. But if you if you aren't aware, yeah, I, I actually couldn't read until I started my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you aren't familiar, Imagine Communities is a pretty foundational sociological text on the modern study of nationalism. Now it's a bit outdated. There's but definitely been a lot of work that's built on that that's probably more relevant or you could, and I use this loosely, better, better by virtue of, of having shoulders to stand on. But one of the really interesting things about the book is that Anderson argues that the great failure of the 19th and 20th century uh, rationalist ideologies which are primarily liberalism and, and marxism liberalism again as, as i mentioned before containing what we understand as liberalism conservatism which both fall under kind of a if you want to be kind of vulgar about what defines liberalism uh, a combination of the notion of the civil rights and capitalism um so so liberalism under that definition and marxism being the main two ideologies that came out of the 19th and 20th centuries their great failing was that they had no metaphysical component. So for nations or, or countries or empires or whatever, up to that point, which had a story of either nation or of, of leadership or especially of religiosity up to that point, they no longer had a metaphysical component which argued for the reason for existence, really. Um, the Marxists uh, and, the, and, the, and the liberals kind of argued for almost an economic conception of life, which Tolstoy is kind of making fun of here, especially in the um, especially in the political economist, especially in the form of Murtoff earlier in, in part seven. And I think that this is kind of a, something that Tolstoy is getting at in the same way that we can look back and have like look at scholars and say, hey, in the 20th century, which Anderson is arguing leads to or at least is the the field which led to the outgrowth of nationalism which we see in the 20th century and that 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 force which kind of took up the mantle which religiosity had played up in, in history up until that point not arguing that they lead one to the next but they kind of operated in the same field we see Tolstoy kind of addressing the same sort of thing where Levin up to this point has been engaging mostly with western rational philosophies even to some degree the church's doctrines and that's all left him hollow up until the point where he accepts a vague not re like a, a, a sort of purpose which is not at all based on reason and in fact is explicitly anti-intellectual anti-reason based uh as his purpose for living which then provides up to that point which had been totally absent in him which is just why do i live day to day I've, you know i can go on and, and engage in these studies but writing my book and getting people to understand this or that about russian labor fundamentally does not answer the question of why should i get up in the morning and why should i not shoot myself as he wants to 
Whereas the basic idea of, well, there's a higher power and I should take care of my family suddenly answers that for him. And that's, that's where he walks away from the book, kind of not exactly discarding his, his rationalist beliefs, but suddenly engaging with something a bit more, and I use this in a very philosophical sense, absurd. I think that's why it's like striking to read as a Western reader, perhaps. Just right. you are kind of watching him go through almost like a problem-solving exercise to some degree, and you're expecting him to come to like, not necessarily like one normal, one like clear truth. Yeah. And he says, that's nah, okay. I'm going to do a, <laughs> I, I'm going to give you something anti-totalizing. And it's, you know, that's why, I think that's why it feels vague and it feels inconclusive, mm. but it's because it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's the point. Like if you're like, yeah, that was kind of unsatisfying. Well, yeah. So is how he left his life kind of. His answer is essentially that like, you know, nothing is going to give me this feeling of like ecstasy or joy in every single part of my life. There's still going to be challenges and, you know, bad emotions and, you know, whatnot. It's not just, you know, I got the truth. Now life is super easy. N nothing can give you that. Right. That's that's the ending. And so that's not satisfying because you just read 900 pages because somebody told you it's supposed to help you understand your life better. And you're <laughs> like, well, what the heck am I supposed to do now? Uh, suffer, I guess. <laughs> Except the religiosity and the trueness of your preferred form of faith and decide that you can't judge anyone else's and then use yes, that for your day-to-day. -day. <laughs> is the best you get, I think. Yeah, but I, I, I guess you do see... I think I, I talked about this last time. Again, the evolution of Len Lenin. Levin. <laughs> <laughs> what is to be done? <laughs> you, you see the evolution of Levin from a very insecure intellectual to the end where, and this is somewhat true in the last part, where we, he starts by being very argumentative to being somewhat listening when he's with other landowners to being, to, you know, argument by disassociation, or by argument by dissociating <laughs> in the last part. Now he's fully engaged with it and he knows what he could say in the next part, but he just chooses not to because he's got no interest in engaging. It, it, to his mind, there's no point in continuing to argue something which you're clearly not going to come to an agreement on. So he's becoming more firmly entrenched and comfortable in his ideas to the point where he just doesn't feel a need to defend them all the time. He can if he wants to, and he says he probably will keep doing that, but if he just doesn't want to talk about it, he's just going to disengage and go inside. Take that, nerds. Yeah, <laughs> which, I mean, shows a comfort in your ideas that certainly he didn't have at the beginning of the book. It, which ties, I think, into his newfound self-confidence, which I guess Tolstoy probably liked to have gotten to, and I'm sure he had at some points in his life. It's not really directly related to what you're talking about, but just for all the Dostoevsky lads listening to the podcast, re really worth noting that Dostoevsky went in on this last chapter, in this last part, in criticism about mm. uh, Tolstoy <laughs> not supporting serbs basically <laughs> just kind of an interesting point of uh divergence for the two yeah up to that point there i mean it's remarkably similar in the way that they both i mean tolstoy is not nearly as explicit in his rejection of western rationalism as dostoevsky since that's mm -hmm. like re rejecting western rationalism is dostoevsky's whole personality uh, whereas tolstoy that's kind of a side point for him and maybe not even totally because you can still engage with Levin's beliefs and still enjoy the Spinoza or, or whatever he's reading at the time. But he, he does come down pretty, like, of all the things that he, he comes down pretty decisively on, he comes down pretty hard on the people who are pro-Serbian war, where, you know, Levin is uh, taking the position which you kind of understand for Tolstoy of just, we need to focus on our own house. I don't really feel a connection to other Serbs, and I don't feel, see any reason why should be, we should be taking sides on that. I, I feel no right to kill another man over a problem that's not my own. And uh, the prince, who has been held up as kind of a paragon of, of like goodness up to this point, is just straight up like, well, if you two believe in this so strongly, cut us off, and Sergei, why aren't you on the front lines? I think any man who believes in war should be put into advanced brigades to fight the wars first before anyone else has to. Which... Got him. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if anyone is the voice of moral authority in this book of, of what Tolstoy really himself believes, it's those two, so... Yeah, it's, it, it brings an interesting point to the kind of hesitancy he has on who has a right to do what, who has a right to kill, or even, dare I bring it back to the epigraph, <laughs> who has a right to judge, vengeance is mine, I will repay, do you have the right, do you have the moral authority to do that? By the end of the book, I don't think I get a strong conclusion that he thinks 
uh, you know, he should. Mm. But that's just me. No, yeah, I, I, I follow that. It's very... I, I don't know. I, I see a lot of the features which get tied to him for a lot of the, the political beliefs that have grown out of Tolstoy, especially Christian anarchism. I'm really seeing some of those basic fundamental ideological ideas that, that grow out of that in this kind of belief he ends with here. Yeah, I think it's worth it's worth noting that Anna Karenina was published serially for several years. And by the end of this, you are at big boy crisis hours. Like, <laughs> I mean, like close to where like he didn't even finish writing it. Uh, that kind of that kind of spiritual crisis yeah uh, so it, it is it does make sense that you're going to see the transition to later religious writings in the end of this and you do and you do how, do how do you see vronsky at the end of this he is he's technically present in this part you know i really don't have much to say on vronsky yeah that's fair i got more to to push on about uh levin and kitty though no yeah go for it because i think they're really the core of this last part because a lot of people when they read this, they say, or based on the movies you watch, you get the impression that Levin and Kitty have just a happy ending. I don't really see that. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Elaborate. I don't know what seems so happy about Levin having a spiritual world completely separate from his wife's. Hmm. Like he goes to this crisis basically on his own. She's kind of in a way used as a tool for him to get over it. Uh, and to come to his conclusion, which he then decides, you know, I can't share it with her. It's kind of my own thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I guess, you know, along his line of logic, how internal this sense of uh, conclusion, this con- how internal this conclusion is to himself and how personal it is, I can see like kind of how he comes to that conclusion. But I don't know that it gives the sort of happy fairy tale ending people seem to think it does Mm. i think it really does show a precursor to how tolstoy's life ends which is walking on a trail leaving his wife behind like you know Mm -hmm. just kind of peacing out (laughs) i don't think it's as happy as some people would like to make it out to be yeah it's content i think he's come to a place where he's content and he's comfortable with his wife but i yeah to the point you're making i think that's a very knowing Tolstoy's actual life easy to easy to see that this is you can't just stop here life goes on living and even as Levin points out that he's still going to be who he is and that is a bit needy and also a bit needy at the same time as as you pointed out having these spiritual crises separate from his family and everyone else he loves so it's kind of hard to follow him emotionally (laughs) yeah it's hard to conclude from all that that this is a happy ending I don't actually even think it's an ending it's not really. It's just, so, it's so open. That's, you know. Yeah. I guess that's kind of the point of it, though. It kind of reminds me, it's a little bit less, it, it has a bit of finality because he does have a, a belief, which he can now take going forward. But it really kind of reminds me of, I, I don't know if you've ever read much Haruki Murakami. Um, one of his books, Norwegian Wood, is is more or less a book about coming of age, which does have some parallel themes to Anna Grinina entirely unintentionally if anything that book is mostly ripped from uh the great gatsby uh but it it kind of ends with the main character calling someone he only sort of knows and then having a breakdown in a phone booth and when she asks him where he is he looks around and says he doesn't know he's at the center of no place and that's kind of the vibe i almost get from this book in the same way that that's not an ending that's just him realizing that up until that point he's been this character um has been wandering around the book just kind of experiencing things at the end he kind of realizes um that he can't just live through other people he's got to live for himself to a degree he the people around him are kind of moving on from and now he's got to make his own decisions in the same way that leaves him with like at the very beginning of his journey i also kind of feel that in this book and that levin has has come to what he believes is his like this is this is the final stage this is the thing that provides impetus for the rest of my life but then the real challenge is in applying that. And Levin has been trying to find a truth for this entire book, and we've never really seen Levin have a chance to apply it, which is the real challenge of any given uh, belief system you have going into your life, which, to your point, but that's not really being ending. It's an ending if you put more weight on the arrival at a truth than you do in applying that truth in your everyday life, which is the real process of life and the harder process of life, really. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think you are right there. Like it is just 
different than a lot of other books. Right. Especially at, at this time. I, I think that we're never going to be able to stop talking about it on the podcast for the fact that it was so influential in Russian literature. And you almost certainly will see echoes of it in other literatures because of the fact that it was like, really, I mean, it's one of the real like mammoths of Russian literature in terms of both size and also influence. And so even though you might think, okay, I'm reading like a modernist book, surely I won't see any Tolstoy here. Well, you just might, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately. Depending on how you look at it. Depending on how much farming is there. <laughs> we got a question to answer from our Discord. What is that? What's the question? So I, I asked in Discord real quick if anybody had any final questions, and I, I took my favorite most important question from our patron, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Jack asks... Thank you, Jack. Jack asks, if you could fight one character from the book, who would it be? And why is it Steva? <laughs> I mean, is my answer supposed to be reflective of someone I dislike? Or is it supposed to be reflective of who I think I could win against? Because those are very different answers. Okay. Because obviously okay. it's going to be Steva in the former case. Yep. Um... In the latter case, God, I think I'd have a pretty good chance against one of the malnourished peasants in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably them. I feel like I could take maybe one of the intellectuals. Oh, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, we could probably beat the shit out of Sergei. Yeah, dude, I think I would get murdered by a, by one of the uh, peasants even if they were malnourished. <laughs> you know, I don't know. The, the strength of their weak cutting hands would just <laughs> strangle the life out of us. <laughs> The way that they know how to live truly moment to moment would really be too much for me to handle. <laughs> You'd walk out there ready to fight, then you see their happiness of working with their families every moment of their lives, and then you just fall to your knees and let them kill you because they truly have the better way of living. Absolutely ended. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's fair. All right, so I guess Sergey Levin would also beat would also beat us in a fight, so it's got to be the weaker brother. Well, yeah, considering Tolstoy wrote himself into the character, you know, he has like some, you know, he's going to be jacked. <laughs> well, he is jacked. That's the... After all that mowing. Yeah, I mean. I, his musculature has come up at least once, maybe twice. Absolute unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So final answer, Sergey is who we would fight, I guess. All right. Done. 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 I'm glad we're finishing off our, our series on one of the most influential books in all time on which character we would fight. That's good. Um, well, the people demand an answer, Cameron. They they do. They do. Um, I, I do want to touch on, on Steva real quickly and say that I think it's interesting that Steva, uh, it, in our discussions of how this book is truly a reflection of, of life, Steva does not have any, even though he's in dire straits by the time we leave him, he is he does not go with any big bang, any big comeuppance for his life. He's just moving one moment to the next, and now he's in a bad state, and who knows how he's going to be tomorrow. He's still out there schmoozing, carousing, hanging out with his dead sister's sort of husband uh kind of just vibing yeah he's, he's just out there vibing still which I, I mean i guess to some degree that's like the worst condemnation you can get in a tolstoy novel and that you just don't have an ending of any sort happy in progress or whatever you just keep going on about your life without ever interrogating how you're living it um or yeah. pulling yourself in a spiral which is where we leave steva just kind of passing off in history and bad financial straits and his wife trying to divorce him or at least separating from him, Vronsky going off to probably die in the Serbian war, Karenin taking in, you know, Vronsky's daughter, as, um, and then, you know, who knows what after that. Yeah, I don't know that it's possible to compare exactly, because it's really different hmm. situations, but I think it does raise the question when the Countess is really going in on Anna, and, you know, then we've <laughs> talking about Steva, in the same chapter and you're kind of thinking well who did the worst thing <laughs> you know yeah i don't know i think uh it's, it's kind of tough i think steve still uh, takes the crown for the absolute worst person in the book I mean, <laughs> yeah i think it is interesting that um that the book is named after anna for a character who ultimately is frankly her role is to provide a contrast against the real character of the book it's it's to provide more weight to his decisions and the fact that he doesn't ever do anything yep 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 yeah yeah so take that everyone who thought it was gonna be like the movies <laughs> you got bamboozled into reading it you got bamboozled into reading a spiritual crisis 
This is ah. one of the greatest books of all time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. I, I gotta say, like walking away from this, um, like going back to a, kind of a serious topic for a moment. I I did not know what to expect coming away from Anna Karenina, but I for what has often been regarded as as one of the greatest achievements of like uh, of novels that we've has been written. I think it it succeeds on so many fronts that we don't give it credit for in the public sphere. That it's just like treated as you know great book you know makes you smarter great love story whatever but that reduces it so much just to speak about it like that it's not an unimpeachable book it's a book which you can criticize on many levels but that's kind of what makes it fun and that it's an attempt to engage with imperfect ideas and it in you all in the certainly tolstoy is walking away with an idea which he think is thinks is correct but has taken 900 pages of him just kind of theorizing to get up to that point and up to that point it's been affairs horse races farming gambling marriage death it's just a book about features of life and i, I just it, it the fact that tolstoy has taken just a couple lives put them into this labyrinth of plots and then made it something that you Ooh. walk away and you just feel plots. <laughs> and, and you just feel as if you've lived that because it, it the yeah in some places the details feel excessive but that's just kind of like living out those lives and it feels like a success not because it's a great novel but because it's a great reflection of lives yeah it's really an active reading experience i mean like you said if you are critiquing it then it has succeeded i think mm -hmm. i think that's the point of it and you're not supposed to agree with everything you're not supposed to walk away with this saying okay i've got the key to life now that's the whole point is you don't nobody does yeah so enjoy that for your own <laughs> impending spiritual crisis <laughs> um yeah oh my last note and this is this is in fact this is badly timed because this is not necessarily why I want to leave our series in Anna Karenina for the time being. But remember our old joke about the fact that every other thing we read, Nabokov at one point or another has called it the greatest X in world literature. Oh yeah, this one on the cover is one of the greatest <laughs> love stories of world literature. Like, did you read the book? <laughs> yeah. You read the serialized version as a child and then just stops halfway through. <laughs> Dude read like parts one and two and was like, yeah, it seems good. I'll put, put this on the jacket. <laughs> I, I don't know how I didn't notice that until this week after like a solid almost three months with this book. I'd never looked at the front cover enough to read that. I like every time I pull this book back out, I forget it's there. I almost have to spit out my drink when I read that quote. <laughs> what what doesn't Vladimir Nabokov thinks is the greatest X story in world literature? That's the real question. Well, we might find out next week. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, speaking of, we've gone a little bit over time, but I think that's permissible for, it is. Uh, for the final, for now, for now, episode on Anna Karenina. <laughs> um, for now, yeah, leaving the, the, for, the, for now, final episode of Anna Karenina. Uh, Matt, on a scale of one to Yeltsin... Actually, no, I take that back. I take that back. I need to make this more theme appropriate. Matt, on a scale of one to Steva, how drunk are you? <laughs> I don't think I could ever be a Steva, actually, on the scale, because I don't think I could ever have that just such disregard for human life. <laughs> um, I'll give it a seven. Okay. Yeah. Because I've, I've had a, a good time with these beers. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. How, how about you? I am at... I, I've had so much... Sorry, at somewhere along the point, we're talking about Benedict Anderson, I forgot to keep consistently drinking so i'm probably only in like a two or three mm. but i gotta mm. say this is a really really pleasing beer it's light it, it's a very as an ipa it's it's a little bit lighter it feels like a very summery drink which makes sense given you know it's wheat harvesting season uh it, it's light it's enjoyable it's it's just a very pleasant drinking experience all around so cheers darren this has been this is really good this has been like a great drink to send off the series on and um yeah, I guess I'll shoot the rest so I can truly forget Kitty and move on. I, I, didn't, I forgot to read the description that Darren sent. He said, I developed this recipe as the kind of beer I would want after a long day of mowing wheat with the peasants trying to get over having my marriage proposal rejected. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> Matt, whew, we have read... Like we've said a couple times, like 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 Vladimir Nabokov says, we've just read the greatest love story in world literature. We did it, boys. Uh, so what? Now that now that we're here and we feel 
as MP as Levin probably does <laughs> generally. Mm-hmm. What are mm-hmm. we reading on our next episode? I was going to make a joke and call this one the greatest love story. I can't even do that joke because, you know, you'll find out next week. Next week, we're going to be joined with a very special guest, Dr. Caitlin Shirley. Yes, she's going to be back. Uh, she was here for the Notes from the Underground episode. She is wonderful and will be talking with us about the meek one, sometimes translated as a gentle creature by Dostoevsky. We have been getting harped to do more Dostoevsky content, uh, which we will. This is actually probably, oh, tough to say, but I think this one could be one of my favorites by him. So you definitely don't want to miss it. You stick around. Um, Certainly people have asked us to do Crime and Punishment, which is on our minds, Uh, just not right now. (laughs) Because we need a break from long novels. Let me breathe. Uh, but we will be engaging with some very fun, well, maybe fun's overselling the the feeling that's going to, some very literature, some very literature, <laughs> some very, some very mentally stimulating work with Dostoevsky. <laughs> Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.